Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, my job today as we kind of officially enter into at least... in in terms of our focus on the Easter season, my job is going to be to prepare us for it, to kick it off, if you will, to get our our hearts and minds in the right vein as we go through it. Here's what happens, right? Something comes up, and if we're not intentional about it, if we don't prepare for it, then we largely take it for granted or miss opportunities to enjoy what it is that we're going through, right? If we are about to set off on an important task, we would make sure that we're prepared for the important task. I hope that even when you came in here today, that you prepared your hearts and minds for the opportunity to worship God and to be with his people. Because sometimes we go through this week and we have a lot of traumas that happen in the week, a lot of burdens that we carry. Some things other people know and some things are secret to us that we're enduring. And when we come through these doors, it's very easy to cling to all of those things and miss what God might have, either from his word or as we engage with him or with one another. But if we prepare our hearts that this is what we're about when we're here, all of a sudden we receive the blessings that God intends for us. And the same is true for Easter season. We could be so busy with all the responsibilities of life, all the the weight that we have to carry, all the things that we do, that we really miss the opportunity to reflect on what God has done, as well as to be used of him in the ways in which he's calling us right now in this season. So my hope is that at the end of today, we'll have the right mind, uh, right framework to be able to enter into the next several weeks, making the most of this opportunity, both in in our ways of celebration before the Lord for what he's done, and also in our service to him, to those outside. Easter season is all about the gospel. The most important thing, it's all about a time to reflect on the gospel, specifically on Jesus's atoning death and his resurrection from the dead. And I just want to share with you two passages of scripture that kind of give us, you know, an understanding of what it is that we're talking about when we say the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. This is from Romans 4.25. Paul subs it up very succinctly in one sentence. He says, he, he being Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Leave that on the screen there for a minute, Josh. Uh, This is an important thing for us to understand because these two elements are essential to the gospel. These two elements are the main elements that we recognize at this time of year, that Jesus was, was crucified, but that his death actually was efficacious for us. It accomplished something for us. He didn't just die, but he died for our sins. And so every Every act of rebellion, every evil motivation, every evil thought, every evil word, every evil deed, everything that separated us from God, Jesus came and died in our place as an atoning sacrifice, paying our debt in full for our sins so that we can have forgiveness from them. But that's not it. He was also raised to new life. And the text says, for our justification. 
It's not a word we often use, but justification, another way to think of it is this, that we now have right standing before God. We have a not guilty verdict, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus's death and resurrection. Another passage that focuses in on the gospel is this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 2 through 4. Paul is writing to a church that he himself established five years earlier. And he says this. He's reminding them of the gospel that he preached. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, most important, primary importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And as we go through the, the gospels, as we go through the epistles, as we go through the book of Acts, we see over and over and over again, this proclamation of the good news that we were separated from God in our sins. And we couldn't fix the problem we caused, but God did by sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins and rising from the dead so that we could have right standing before God by his grace. And so as we prepare for the Easter season together, our tasks this Easter season, at least with regard to Jesus's death and resurrection, are threefold. And I want to lay them out for you today. The first is this, celebration. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have believed the gospel, then you have reason to celebrate. In fact, this whole season is is representative of that which gives you hope, that gives you life. All the things we enjoy in Christ are as a result of the things that we celebrate at this particular time of year. And so we need to celebrate. We need to take the time to reflect on what God has done. We need to take the time to give thanks to God for what he was willing to do for us. We need to praise him and we need to be of joy. You know, I'll tell you, you know, when we read through Paul's life in Acts, which we've been doing recently, it's amazing how much hardship, how much persecution, how many things he endured. And you got to think, if it was me in Paul's shoes, I'd be the grumpiest person in the world. Boy, did he have it hard. And yet, what do we see? A life filled with joy, not because of the hardships he's facing, but because of the truth of his relationship with the Lord, secured by Jesus's death and resurrection, which is far greater than any hardships he would ever face. And the same is true for you and I. So our first task this Easter season is celebration. The second is this. The second is proclamation. And I know this is, this is something that might worry us, make us nervous. You know, we, 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 it's easy perhaps to hold on to a private faith, but to be able to go and boldly speak it to somebody else might give us the jitters. But this is the great honor that God has entrusted to us, that we not just be people who are recipients of the gospel, but those who promote it, those who share it, those who let other people be exposed to it, respond to it, and have joy like you have joy, celebrate like you celebrate, because their lives too are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that only happens when his people share the truth with others. And so we're going to be preparing for this Easter season by talking about proclamation, telling the good news to other people who don't yet know Jesus. And finally, defense. Well, what does that mean? That's a different kind of word. Defense in the sense that when we're going out and proclaiming the gospel, 
When we're telling people why we have joy and why we're celebrating, when we tell people the way in which to be saved, we're talking to people who currently believe things about the world, right? They come to the table with an existing worldview. They believe certain things about God. They believe certain things about reality. They believe certain things about history. They believe certain things about morality. And all of these things have been shaped their entire lives. And so as we proclaim the truth of the gospel, a lot of times it's in conflict with what they currently believe. These are reasonable things for them to question and wrestle through. And we have to be willing to dig in together with them, much in the same way we've seen Paul and others do it throughout Scripture. And so this is going to be my goal today to prepare us for these three things in celebration that we might understand, that we might know, that we might cling to what Jesus has done for us. We're going to, um, that's my role today is to help us make sure that we are in a position to be able to celebrate well this season. Also, for proclamation, to, to help us to know what and how to tell others. How do we proclaim? How do we share the gospel? How do we talk about the things that we celebrate this season with other people? We're going to talk about that. And also defense, how to demonstrate the truth of the good news that we celebrate, especially at this time of year. So we're going to focus first now on that first element of the gospel, the first major theme of this season, which is the death of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. It'll also be up on the screen. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33. And we're going to read a brief account of the death of Jesus. Here's what it says in Luke 23, starting in verse 33. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I'm going to jump down a few verses to verse 44. It says this, It was now about noon, and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, I took a brief description of the death of Jesus, and I made it even briefer by only sharing a few verses. But even as we read through the gospel accounts, I think that we miss so much of what Jesus endured. And I just want to remind us of a couple things real quick here this morning. That this process, as Jesus was going through his ministry, his, his face was set, Luke says, on Jerusalem. He never lost sight of why he came. And what we see at Easter season, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, was the ultimate reason for which he came. Because while he had a lot to say and a lot to do during his earthly ministry, ultimately, it wouldn't have amounted to much if he did not redeem those he came to. And his death and his resurrection accomplished that. And as he arrived in Jerusalem, the very people who should have been the first to recognize him and celebrate him did not. He came to those that received the scriptures, that received the prophecies, that received the promises of God that the Messiah would come in due course of time. And as he came, 
They did not recognize him. In fact, the religious leaders stood opposed to Jesus. And he predicted this throughout his ministry. And sure enough, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was rejected by the religious leaders. After he was turned over to the Romans, he received a terrible scourging by a cat of nine tails that would have put him close to death even long before he got down to the place where he was crucified. He was forced to carry his cross, which if we read through the gospel accounts, we know that because of his weakened state, his blood loss, and all that he has endured up to this point, it was too much for him to be able to physically do himself. He was crucified. As he was being crucified, he was mocked by all. And one of the things that we don't know from the, the scripture passages, but medical knowledge in our day has helped us to understand, is that people, when they, they were crucified, they died primarily by asphyxiation. Because while there's many reasons why somebody would die through the traumas that they endure during crucifixion, you are, when you're hanging on the cross, you, have the, you do not have the ability to exhale to get the carbon dioxide out of your lungs, you have to push against your nails and your feet and in your hands to be able to lift yourself up to a point where you can exhale. And then you collapse back down, not being and having to do that again painfully in just a few short moments. And so that was most likely the way by which Jesus died. Of course, with all that he endured, it could have been blood loss, shock, or any of the other traumas that he received in this process. I know that's graphic, and I know that that's probably not something we like to reflect on. In fact, I remember a few years ago during Good Friday, we played the Passion of the Christ here, and there were several people who during the crucifixion scene just had to turn their eyes away. It was just too much for us to bear, not just that this horrible torture would happen to any human being, but to our Lord who we love. But this is the reality of what he was willing to endure for you and for me, because it was the only means by which he can reconcile humanity and he was willing to pay it all for us. Which begs the question, you know, why do we commemorate the day on which Jesus died as Good Friday? Why, do, why do on earth is the death of Jesus considered to be good news? And I'll tell you, it certainly has nothing to do with what he endured in the sense that that wasn't good, but what it accomplished certainly is. The writer of Hebrews sums it up this way in Hebrews 10.10. He says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What does that mean? That means that we who were separated from God in sin, who had this propensity towards sin, we were dead in our sins and we had no ability to save ourselves, to fix our situation, to reconcile ourselves to God. Jesus was able to accomplish this by sacrificing his own body on the cross for us. And so his sacrifice made atonement, a covering for our sins so that we, the unholy, the common, the rebellious, might be made holy through his blood. Not just, not over and over, not for a time, but once for all. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to cover all people for all time, whoever would give their lives to him. And we know that the death of Jesus accomplishes so much for us. Just a few of things that we're going to focus in on today. It makes atonement for our sins. 
The whole Old Testament sacrificial system that we look at as people sin, both the nation and individuals, they bring these offerings, these animal offerings before the Lord. The priests sacrifice them. The blood goes on the altar and it's a covering for the person so that they might, their sin might be covered and they might be reconciled to God, either ceremonially or morally before the Lord. And all of that was a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the covering of Jesus's blood for us for all time. And so in the death of Jesus, God's justice was, sacri- was, was, God's justice was executed, but also he had the ability to demonstrate his love by letting somebody else take the penalty for our wrongs. The death of Jesus reconciles, reconciles us to the God that we have been estranged from. You remember the beginning, right? Genesis chapter one, God created everything. Genesis chapter 2, God created man and woman, gave them an important role to to tend to the garden. And what do we see in the very third chapter of the entire Bible? But this rebellion against God, and as a result of their sin, this just consequence of being sent out from the presence of God, barred from the way back to the Garden of Eden, this estrangement that exists between God and humanity. And what Jesus' death does for us is it reconciles us to the God we were created to be in fellowship with. The death of Jesus moves us from death to life. And we talk about eternal life, and that's because we need it, because until we have received it from him, we are in eternal death. It changes our eternal destiny. We move from a place of being estranged from God in this life and forever to being reconciled to him. And the promise is that we will be with him forever, long beyond this earthly life and on into eternity, only made possible by the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus makes possible our adoption as God's children. That we are called in the scriptures co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of God, the king of the universe, considers us his children, not because of anything we've done, but again, by the death of Jesus. And this is good news. This is the best news. This is good news because this was the plan of God to reconcile lost people to himself and to undo the results of the fall that we read about in Genesis 3. And so we need to celebrate. Friends, if your life is not marked by celebration because of what God has done, you're missing something. And you need to focus back in on what God has done. It should be the very impetus for the way you live your lives in worship and thanksgiving to God and in service to him in this world. We need to celebrate. And as we prepare for this Easter season, we need to be focusing on celebration. We are no longer estranged from God. In fact, he calls us his children. We're no longer destined to be eternally separated from him, but he is a part of our lives now and we will see him face to face one day. We're no longer spiritually dead and we're no longer slaves to sin. In fact, while we continually fail, while we mess up, while we're still not perfect, God is at work in us, perfecting us, making us more and more into the image of Christ because he loves us and abides with us as a result of Jesus' death. These are some of the things that we celebrate because of the death of Jesus. And friends, we need to proclaim We need to proclaim this good news because God offers it freely to all people. And what a privilege this is. He calls us, even us, to be ambassadors of this good news. So what does that look like? What does it look like to proclaim? 
How do we do it? What do we say? Um, you know, what are some of the talking points, perhaps, that we, we start with as we try to engage in gospel-centered conversations with those who don't know Jesus? Here's just an example. You know, God created us, created all humanity for the purpose of having a relationship with him. But if we're going to be honest, our evil thoughts, our evil words, our evil deeds, they, you know, in our, our apathy toward God, are not, our God are not thinking about him, perhaps our even active rebellion against God. All of these things separate us from God and they make impossible that relationship with God that he has called us to have and he has made us for. But God made a way where we didn't have a way to make. God made a way that we could be reconciled to him. And he did this by sending Jesus to die on the cross, to take all the consequence for our evil thoughts, our evil words, our evil deeds, our rebellion and our apathy. He took it all and paid the price. He died in our place. And, we, and we, those words don't have to be the exact words, but we need to be able to talk about these matters with other people. We also need to defend this good news because there are plenty of lies that exist in our world today that would obscure or attempt to obscure the truth of the good news, the truth of the gospel. For instance, here's just some in relation to the death of Jesus. The Quran that the Muslims affirm is their holy book. The Quran asserts that Jesus did not die. Also, there have been skeptics who have claimed that Jesus might have just passed out on the cross, or that he went into a coma. And that would definitely explain why everybody believed he rose from the dead. He was never really dead to begin with. And these are just some of the lies that are perpetuated in our culture regarding the death of Jesus. And here's why we have to take it seriously as we are proclaiming the gospel to others and why we see a need to defend. Because if Jesus didn't die, then atonement has not been made for sins, for yours, for mine, for anybody else's. We would still be in our sins. We would still be separated from God. In fact, all of Christianity, all of this book, the Bible, would be nothing but a bunch of lies if Jesus did not die. So how can we know? How can we know the truth of these things? And how can we demonstrate the truth to others? So first, if you would answer that, I believe because that's what the Bible says. I have no problem with that answer. Let me start by saying that. If you come to faith in Jesus and you believe what the Bible says about his death and his resurrection and you don't need any evidence, that's great. I have no problem with that kind of faith. However, as Christians, we still need to be able to demonstrate the truth of these things to those who don't have that same way of coming to those conclusions. We still have to be able to demonstrate the truth to others who don't believe on the basis of what the Bible says. Um, for instance, if you tell an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim that they should believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins because the Bible says it, that's probably not going to be your most effective defense since they don't put any stock in what the Bible says. An atheist wouldn't even believe there's a God, so they wouldn't put much stock in the word of God. A Muslim believes that the, the Bible's corrupted because the Quran says so. So just that you're saying that the Bible says it is not evidence enough for them. They don't care what the Bible says. So how do we demonstrate that Jesus died apart from the Bible? And thankfully, God in his providence has provided substantial 
historical evidence. And I just want to share with you just a small sampling of this evidence as I help us prepare for the ability to not just proclaim, but to defend. So for starters, we have non-Christian Roman historical sources from early on around the time, within 100 years of the time of Jesus. Uh, One of these is, is Tacitus, who's been credited as the greatest Roman historian by many. He wrote in the latter part of the first century, probably not long after the Gospel of John was written, um, and in his writing about the great fire in Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero, here's what he wrote. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated by their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, uh, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So here's what Tacitus is saying as he's writing this history for the Roman officials, the Roman leaders, for posterity, for the Roman people. He is trying to describe this group of people that Nero has targeted in Rome, and he does so by showing their origins, that it comes from this movement in Judea that started when their leader, Christ, was crucified, was executed at the time of Tiberius Caesar, which is what the Bible says, under Pontius Pilate, which is what the Bible says. And so we see the facts of the gospel, the facts of Jesus's death affirmed by people who had absolutely no stock in Christianity whatsoever, this Roman historian. We also have non-Christian Jewish historical sources, including the writings of Josephus, also writing from that first century, just a few decades after the time of Jesus. And he mentions Jesus. He mentions Jesus's rejection by the Jewish leaders and also his death. And again, the truth of these things affirmed early on in history, close to the time of these events by people who had no stock at all in Christianity. And finally, we do have early Christian eyewitness testimony. Now, one might think as you're talking with people about the gospel that, you know, Christian testimony is worthless. Come on. Christian test- Christians are biased. Of course, they're going to believe these things. They're just, they're just trying to affirm the truth of the things that they believe. But here are some important facts. First, Christians had no reason to lie about Jesus' death because his death, as we've seen as we've studied Acts, was the biggest stumbling block to the Jewish people believing that Jesus was the Messiah. We see Paul over and over again as he went to synagogues all around the Roman world, having to show from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, that the Messiah had to die because it was the farthest thing from their minds at the time. And so they had no reason to lie. And so the fact that the early church is proclaiming that Jesus died is only because it's true. Second, if Jesus wasn't crucified, if he didn't die, then the Jewish religious leaders and many living in Jerusalem would have just revealed this claim as a lie. We never turned over anybody named Jesus. We never had anybody named Jesus crucified. This never happened in Jerusalem. We've been living here all our lives. And so Christianity would have been marked out as a lie from the very beginning if these things weren't true. 
Let's imagine this for a minute. If I told you right now that there was a public execution on, on Main Street in Belglade today, um, and this never happened, would you believe me? If I said that something like that had just taken place this morning on Main Street in Belglade, I'm proclaiming this, you drove past Main Street, you know, through Main Street on your way here today, you didn't see it. In fact, everybody you talked to said that never happened today. Would you believe me? No. And so, of course, proclaiming this in Jerusalem is evidence that these things happen. And third, the Christian eyewitness testimonies are the earliest sources on the matter. They were closest to the events than anybody else, and they wrote earliest on these events of Jesus' death. And so the conclusion, there is much historical evidence to support the fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion outside of Jerusalem in the early first century. There's a big chasm, if you will, between the fact that an event happened and what it means. So let me ask you this. Um, How do we know that Jesus' death accomplished for us anything at all, never mind what he said that it would? How do we know that salvation came through the death of Jesus. First, Jesus claimed that it did. And this will be relevant in just a moment. Jesus claimed that it did. In his last supper, uh, before his arrest, he said this. This is in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. It'll be on the screen. It says, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so just hours before his arrest, just a short time before his, his, his trial, a short time before his execution, Jesus is giving the reason for it. Jesus is saying what it will accomplish. But those are just words. How do we know that what he said is true? And that brings me to the second point, that Jesus proved the truth of what he said by his resurrection from the dead. A resurrection is a miracle. Would you agree with me on that? I don't see a whole lot of resurrections happening. In fact, dead people tend to stay dead. So a resurrection is a miracle. And there's only one person who can accomplish miracles, God. And if God is raising Jesus from the dead, then God is affirming that Jesus is exactly who Jesus said he was. Because somebody who goes around saying, I'm the son of God, who is not a son of God. Someone who says, I do the will of my father in heaven, but wasn't doing the will of his father in heaven. When that person died, God would not have performed a miracle to raise him from the dead. And by doing that, God validated everything Jesus said, including the promise of what his death accomplished. People could say anything, but that doesn't make it true. But if the claim is backed up by evidence, it becomes believable even extraordinary claims like this. And if Jesus had said his death would bring salvation, but then he stayed dead, everybody would have wondered if it was really true. But when the same man rises from the dead, we are warranted in taking him at his word. So let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the passage that we read earlier today, Mark chapter 16. This is one of the gospel accounts of the discovery of the empty tomb. It will also be up on the screen for you. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, 
Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The tomb was empty. Jesus has risen. Why is the resurrection of Jesus important for us? The Bible gives us several reasons. We'll look at just a few. For starters, just like his death, Jesus' resurrection was a necessary part of our salvation. When we talk to people about the gospel, it's, sometimes it becomes very easy to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. In fact, we're, we're probably programmed to do that. A lot of times, perhaps, we forget or neglect to, to, to say the second part, which is that he rose again from the grave for our sins, right? But the Bible makes it clear that they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. In fact, both his death and his resurrection are necessary for our salvation. We see this in Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 4.25. He says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, for our right standing, for our not guilty verdict. He was risen. Second, in the same way Jesus rose from the dead, we will one day as well. Here's what Paul says on the matter in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For each in, but each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And so we celebrate what God did in raising Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago because it points forward to the day he will raise you and I and all of our other Christian loved ones who have gone along the way will one day stand on the earth, reunited soul and body to be with us and with the Lord for all of eternity. What a beautiful promise. And when we reflect on this together, what happened in Jesus, he was the first of all who will one day be raised. And so through Christ's death and resurrection, we're saved. And just as Christ was raised bodily from the dead, so you and I will be too when Christ returns. And that is good news, my friends. In fact, it is the good news. And so therefore, friends, as we prepare for this Easter season, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate because God has not only sent the Savior to die in our place, but raised him from the dead and promises that we also will rise. And that is reason to celebrate. This is why we have hope, even at a funeral for a Christian brother or sister. We know that this is not goodbye. This is not the end because God will raise those people at the end. Death is not the end of the story. This is why this life is worth living. If our lives ended at our death, then the things that we accomplished in this life, the things we invested in, 
How long will they last beyond that? If they don't carry over into eternity, if we're not, if we're not rewarded or judged on the basis of what we've done, how many generations go before names, our names are forgotten? Our deeds are forgotten. But when we live forever, when there's the promise of resurrection and eternal life, everything counts for all of eternity. We have reason to celebrate. This life is of value because it doesn't end with our deaths. We have reason to celebrate. We also have to proclaim because the world is full of people who are perishing and time is short. They're separated from God and they're in danger of remaining that way, separated from God forever. But by his grace, God has done everything necessary to accomplish their salvation and has entrusted you and I to be ambassadors of the good news. And we need to tell them the good news. And friends, we need to defend because this good news is rather fantastic. Um, and while we might take the truth of it for granted, we have to recognize the fact that it is harder for other people to believe the truth of these things. Perhaps a good illustration is this. If a Muslim came to you this afternoon and told you that uh, their imam pray, uh, prayed and raised somebody from the dead, and that demonstrates the truth of Islam, would you believe it? You'd probably want to see some evidence. I hope you wouldn't be really quick to believe if somebody says, oh yeah, our imam raised somebody from the dead this morning. It proves Islam is true. Do you believe? I really hope you wouldn't be like, yes. You want to, you want to investigate. You want to find out the truth of these matters. You would need some evidence. Why would we expect it to be any different when we make a proclamation of the truth of the gospel to somebody else? Jesus Christ died in your place, rose again from the dead, and you could be saved if you commit your life to him. Do you believe? How do I know those things you're saying are true? That's a reasonable question. And so we need to be able to empty, enter into that space. After all, dead people tend to stay dead. So when we say some, one of them didn't, we need to be able to show the truth of it. So how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Again, here's just a small sampling of evidence so I don't keep you here till 3 p.m. Let's start with this one. I'll give you two big ones. Here's the first one. The tomb was found empty. The tomb was found empty. In fact, multiple sources claim that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Let me tell you why this is significant. This is significant because it is a claim that could be easily verified or falsified. In fact, if there was no such person as Joseph of Arimathea on the Sanhedrin, everybody would know it, especially everybody in Jerusalem. Christians are lying. If there was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea on the Sanhedrin, but he never let Jesus be buried in his tomb, he probably would have made that known. And again, it would have been falsified. Christians are lying. This never happened. But we have no case of this happening in history where these facts were denied. So why is it important to know where Jesus was buried? Because as a leading member on the Jewish Sanhedrin, everybody would have been able to know where his family tomb was. And so the ladies, when they went to anoint the body of Jesus, didn't accidentally go to the wrong tomb. They knew where the tomb was. The Jews, when they heard the, the Christians saying, resurrection, resurrection, could have went to the tomb and verified it. And if there's a body in that tomb, they're liars and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The Romans could have even investigated the tomb. Again, if there's a body in the tomb, 
Any of those groups could have exhumed the body, paraded it down the street, or did whatever they had to do to falsify Christian claims. None of this happened in history. Instead, what we see, even in the Gospel of Matthew, is the Jewish religious leaders making excuses for why there's no body in the tomb, because the body was not there. The tomb was empty. Now, if we're being honest, the empty tomb by itself does not, does not prove re uh, resurrection from the dead. But here's the thing. Numerous people on numerous occasions, both individuals and groups of people, claim to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Individuals and groups. And not even that, Christians and non-Christians believed it as well. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul is writing, he says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And watch what Paul does here. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What is Paul doing here? He's not only giving them the gospel again, but he's showing the evidence that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. In essence, what he's saying is this. Here's the long list of people who saw him. Go ask them. In fact, even when we see a group of 500 people, he says, some have died, but most are still living. Investigated. They're there. They're still alive and can tell you what they saw. Not only that, there's two significant names in this list. Names of people who did not believe in Jesus until they saw Jesus risen from the dead. The first one listed is James, the brother of Jesus. We see the brothers of Jesus listed twice in the Gospels. On one occasion, Jesus is speaking in a house and Jesus' mother and brothers come to collect him because they think he's of two minds, the Greek says. He's out of his mind. He's insane. And so James would have been among them, his brothers. Not only that, in John chapter 7, we see his brothers taunting him. If you're going to be this big public figure, you might as well go down to Jerusalem for the festival. And then John says this, they said that because they did not believe in him. And yet, as Paul is writing this in 54 to 55 AD, James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in him, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What happened? How do you go from a hearted skeptic who didn't believe in your brother as the Messiah to being the leader of the church? And he gives the answer right here. James saw Jesus after he died, alive again, risen from the dead. And Paul lists himself as well, a skeptic, a persecutor of the church, one who did not believe, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and believed. Again, evidence for the truth. And we see this over and over again. And so if people saw the risen Jesus, but his body was still in the tomb, they would have just chalked it up to hallucination or something else, trickery maybe. If the tomb was empty, but there were no appearances of the risen Jesus, one might wonder if somebody stole the body or something else happened. But these two facts together make a compelling case for Jesus' resurrection 
by themselves. And yet there's so much more evidence for the truth of it. Friends, as we go through this Easter season together, we need to celebrate. We need to lean into the Lord in praise and thanksgiving during this Easter season. We should all be reading through the events of Jesus' Passion Week in the Gospels. We need to reflect on what Christ's death and resurrection meant for you and meant for me in this life and also in the one to come. We need to come to church every week and celebrate, not just with your, 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 your family, but your church family as we celebrate what God has done for all of us in Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to be proclaiming. Jesus died and rose again to secure salvation for as many would come to him. Don't be selfish and keep that to yourself. I praise God for my salvation. I praise God for the salvation of each of you who has committed your life to Jesus. But I also praise God that he has given us this wonderful responsibility of leading others to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's not neglect that this season. Tell others that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we who, have, who were supposed to be eternally separated from God now can be reconciled to him forever. And friends, we're going to need to defend. To whatever ability we have, we need to be able to give the defense for the good news. The good news includes some massive claims, right? That a person's death 2,000 years ago brings us salvation. That a dead person rose from the dead. Those are some pretty big claims. And they're hard for other people to believe. But by his grace, God has provided evidence in just some of it you've heard today. Pass it on. Share the truth and how we can test these magnificent claims that the gospel makes. Help others to remove some of those intellectual obstacles that have been keeping them from faith in the gospel. The good news is true. And the truth is, it is the best news ever.